typically he doesn't look over, but today he happens to look over. And next to him pulls this beautiful 20-something-year-old brunette. And their eyes lock, and they look at each other, and she gives him a flirtatious wink and then drives off. And he decides, you know what, I need to get this out of my mind. It's a temptation. I've been married for over a decade. I've got kids. I can't entertain those thoughts. So sure enough, he pulls up to another stoplight. Guess who pulls up next to him? the beautiful 20-something-year-old brunette. And this middle-aged man um, finds himself looking over a second look just to see if maybe he knew this girl, maybe she just winked because she knew him from workplace or whatever. He's like, I'm just going to look. So he looks over, and she's staring at him again, and their eyes lock for a second time. So he does something he never had done before. He rolled down his window. She rolled down her window. They looked at each other. And he, the words just came out before he could even stop them. He said, would you like to grab lunch? And she said, sure, I don't have anything going on. And so he calls his golf buddies and said, I'm running a little behind. I'll be there a little later, go and get started on the first nine. So he finds himself in this clandestine mill with this 20-something-year-old girl. And his heart is telling him to drop the fork, forget the entree, hit the door, say, excuse me, and run. But he finds himself going into his mode that he was as a single guy, charming, very captivating. So to this unsuspecting young woman, he starts charming and captivating her. They both found out that they both were married and they both shouldn't be there, but the conversation kept going. Fast forward a few months, she's pregnant, and he, the word's starting to get around in his workplace that he may be the dad. So he does the unthinkable. He ends up murdering her husband, and he ends up leaving his wife and getting married to this woman. And it was the scandal of the town. Everyone talked about it. They tried to cover it up, but eventually the truth became known. Do you think this guy is a good guy or a bad guy? What would you say? Most people would say bad guy. In fact, as I told my wife this story, she was really upset. Her blood was boiling. And I said, well, this is actually based upon a true story. Does anybody know which story modern day retelling would be of David and Bathsheba? And I, I did it in contemporary terms because if I told the other story, you know what I'm talking about. But it begs the question, if someone that was called a man after God's own heart blew it and fell into temptation, what hope is there for the rest of us? Because David, I mean, this guy wrote scripture, he danced over the Lord, he was a musician of Israel, man after God's own heart, he blew it. So is there any hope for the average Joe or Jane in the room? And I'm glad you asked that question. Because today I'm going to give you some simple strategies, six simple strategies on how to overcome the seduction of temptation. Because here's the truth, no matter if you're 16 year old or 86 in here, you're going to be tempted. Now, the temptations may change as you get older, I've been told, but there's still temptations. So today, I believe that God has given me a message that will change someone's life. And in fact, I think that someone may be you, it may be me. So how many of you are ready to jump into God's word today? All right. If you will, read along as I read James 1, 13 through 18. It's going to be on the screen here. It says, let no one say when he is tempted. Notice when, it's not if, you will be tempted. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But, everyone say but. Each one of us is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own desires. Verse 15. So he gives, a, he gives an illustration from fishing, which guys get. Now, for the women who didn't get the fishing illustration, he gives a childbirth illustration. Verse 15. Then when desire has conceived conception, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Father, as we look into your words, speak to our hearts. God, we know temptation is something that we, we encounter at all ages and stages of life. So, Lord, help us to understand what your word has to say. Help us to see these six simple strategies that will help us. And, Lord, if anyone is living in sin, that they would realize there, there's a way of escape. They can get out of it. And for the Christian that's defeated, that keeps on committing the same pattern of uh, doing what they know they shouldn't, help them know there's a victory in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that you open our eyes, illuminate us, and help us to leave this place. We may have come defeated, but help us leave this place victorious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to talk about how to overcome the seduction of temptation. Think about the last time you were tempted. Some of you it may have been this morning, some of you last week. We are all tempted. And the challenge is, since it's a reality we face every day, how do we overcome it? Now the Bible is clear and I've heard a lot of um, people that say, well, you're going to sin every day. And I was like, well, where's that in the Bible? They can't really find it in the Bible. But what, what they should say is you're tempted every day. You don't have to sin every day. There's always a way of escape. And the Holy Spirit gives us victory to say no. You ever hear someone say, well, I just fell into temptation? You don't actually fall into it. It's something that you battle with and you choose and you encounter it. So look at your listening guide, and we're going to have six strategies to help you overcome, you and me to overcome. And the first one is this, don't blame a good God on your bad choices. Don't blame a good God on your bad choices. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, what? I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. The story is told of a businessman who visited his doctor for the annual checkup. And he said, doctor, I don't want you to use those scientific terms. Just give it to me in plain English. What, what's wrong with me? I feel lethargic. I, I'm just not feeling the energy I used to. Um, the scales aren't my favorite anymore. And the doctor said, okay, you want plain English? Here you go. You are lazy and you need more exercise. The businessman replied, well, thank you, doctor. Now, can you give me the long scientific name so I could tell my coworkers what was wrong with me? <laughs> See, we love to cover it up. We, we don't want to really hear the truth or tell the truth. So here's the truth about temptation. If you want to know the truth, God never tempts us. Now, God tests us, and we found out in the first 12 verses, he tests us so that he can bless us. But temptation is on a whole other level. Temptation is not to make you better, it's to make you worse. God tests us so that he can build, up, build us up. But when we are tempted, it's not to build us up, it's to make us weaker. It's Satan finding that weakness and soliciting that so we fall. 
And by the way, he knows all of your weaknesses better than you even know your weaknesses. Better than your spouse knows what your weakness is if you're married. So a pastor in Oregon spoke with a woman who was bitter at God. And the pastor said, why are you so bitter at God? Tell me what's going on. And she basically explained, you know, I, I was married to this horrible husband and he treated me horrifically. And so I went to a counselor and I really pray that God would show me the right counselor. And she was fragile at the time and needy. And the counselor was manipulative and seducing. So after she poured out her heart about her husband, um, the counselor ended up saying, well, I understand you. And the two of them end up having an affair. And here's what she said, quote, I sought God in prayer before I went to counseling. And I believe God led me to this counselor. Therefore, it's God's fault that I was seduced. And, you know, the thing is, we often blame God for our bad choices. So James is basically clearing up. Never blame a good God on your bad choices. Nobody made you do it. You know, we say the devil made me do it. Even the devil can't make you do it. Can't make myself do it. It's a choice. But for the Bible reader in here, um, there's two questions that come from this text. Okay, if God can't be tempted by evil, wasn't Jesus tempted? And Christians, we believe that Jesus is God. So how was Jesus tempted if God can't be tempted? That's a valid question. And the second question that people have brought up from this text is, doesn't the Lord's prayer say, lead us not into temptation? Well, if God doesn't lead us into temptation, why do we pray for him not to? You guys ever thought this as you read this? Well, simple answer for that. I mean, it's a long answer. I'm trying to give you the summary of it. Is Jesus was fully God and fully human. So when Jesus was tempted, he wasn't tempted according to his deity. He was tempted towards his humanity. And don't mistake, he wasn't 50% God, 50%. He was 100% of all. So when Jesus was tempted, it was a real temptation. But here's an illustration from Aaron. He didn't use an example. Aaron bench presses a lot of weight. And I haven't asked him what his max is. But whenever you're bench pressing and you're lifting more weight than you can do, behind you you have someone called a spotter. So think of it like this. This illustration helped me. Suppose that Jesus' humanity was, it, wasn't, it was perfect, but just hypothetically, if the weight was too much, guess what would spot him? His deity. So that's why Jesus never sinned, because he was fully God. He was fully man, so the temptation was real, but yet he was fully God. And you know the thing is, is we have God living inside us through the Holy Spirit. So you see where I'm going with this. So you don't have to keep buying into the same sin. If you ask the Holy Spirit to help you, he will spot you and he will lift you up. Whenever we sin, the, the, the answer is why? Why? The question is why? Well, it's, we don't live up to the Holy Spirit's power. The truth is the Holy Spirit resides in us. And anytime you or I make a mistake, we're failing to live up to the Holy Spirit's power. Can I get a uh-huh? And I know that's easier said than done because we live in these fallen bodies. And guess what? We will mess up. And God gives grace, but I'm trying to give you the good news. There, there's always a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10:13 says, There is no temptation has taken you above what you're able to bear. But God is able, with the temptation, also make a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. Isn't that amazing? God always has an exit. There's always a way out. So from now on, after hearing this verse, you can't say, Well, the devil made me do it or God tempted me. Well, no, can't. Okay, what about the second question reading this text? Well, doesn't the Lord's prayer say, lead us not into 
temptation. Well, if God doesn't tempt us, why do we even have to pray that? Remember a few weeks ago, for those of you here, I said the word temptation can be translated two different ways, testing or tempting. So you could say, God, I'm so weak, I don't want to be tested. Please help there not be unnecessary trials. That's one way of understanding it. The second way is this. Satan is the one who tempts you, but guess who is over Satan? God is over Satan. So um, this illustration I thought was really good. It comes from... uh, GotQuestions.org. So if you ever have Bible questions, this, this website has a lot. It says, imagine a mother taking her, her children shopping. How many mothers we got out there? All right, a lot of mothers, grandmothers. And you know if you go down a certain aisle, the candy aisle, your kids are going to throw a fit. They're going to want the candy and all this. So as a wise mother or grandmother, you go around the candy aisle and you go a different way because you know if they go down the candy aisle... They're going to be selfish, on a fit, grabbing candy off the shelves. And all the parents said, uh-huh. So basically, you could say it like this. Lord, lead me not down the candy aisle because I'm too weak. You know, God's not going to lead you down the candy aisle. He's going to deliver you from it, but you've got to pray. So let it be clear. God tests us, but he doesn't tempt us. So you're saying, God, I'm too weak. I'm going to fall into temptation. Don't let the tempter even come. So what we would call that is being proactive instead of reactive. So do you know it's good to pray, God, help me not to sin. That's good, but it's even better to say, God, help me not even get near temptation. Run from it when it comes. So since God is good and holy, he would never lead you or I to do anything that is not good or holy. So Charles Stanley, many of you see him on TV, he brought up six misunderstandings about temptations. And then you're a listening guy. I thought these were so good. The first one is temptation itself is not sin. If, if you're trying to live a victorious Christian life, and this has always tripped me up in my 20s, I thought the temptation itself was the sin. Temptation is not the sin. It's when you yield to it. So I'll give you an example. Let's say, God forbid, you have a, a bad thought come through your mind. Let's say you, you can't stand somebody. It comes through your mind. Have you just sinned at this point? No, unless you dwell on it. If you kick it out of your mind... You've resisted temptation. So some of you are like, praise God, I thought I was sinning all the time. Well, you're tempted all the time, but you're not sinning all the time unless you go for it. Back to the story of David and Bathsheba. The first look, was that the sin? Nope, it was the second look. And it was what followed after that. So that that, that one point may liberate a lot of us today. The second one we've already mentioned, we don't fall into temptation. It's not like something you fall into. We're going to learn later it's something inside of you, this inner desire and this outward allurement that brings you into it. Number three, God is disappointed and displeased when we were tempted. That's not the case because Jesus himself was tempted. And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Number four, and this is something so easily to believe, to be strongly tempted means we are as guilty as if we had never committed the sin. For those of you who love chocolate cake, eagerly desiring the chocolate cake, it's just as bad as if you went and ate it. Now, if you know you shouldn't have the chocolate cake and you like resist it, you haven't eaten the chocolate cake, okay? So a lot of times Satan will throw a temptation. You're struggling with it. You're praying through it, but you're not giving into it. You're resisting temptation. Some of you are getting hungry for cake even now as I'm talking. Number five, to overcome all temptation, I have to be separated from it, separation from it. The only way you're going to be able to do that is to be like a monk in a monastery. But guess what? You'll still be tempted. (laughs) 
as long as you're in this world, separation from all the world will not keep you from being tempted. You'll still be tempted. And the sixth point that Stanley gives is when I'm spiritually mature, I will no longer be harassed by temptation. And some of you who grew up in some holiness movement backgrounds, I being one of them, some of the some on the holiness stream thought you could get to the point of complete sanctification, that you'll never sin. And guess what? No one's ever reached that. Jesus is the only one who never said. So that's not true theology. In fact, the Bible says if anyone says he has not sinned, he's a liar. So I don't know why people teach that, but that's not biblical. So you will always be tempted when you're in this fallen body. Kind of get uh uh-huh. All right. Strategy number two is recognize the source and seduction of your temptation. The source and seduction. Look at verse 14. And James here uses a fishing analogy. Any fishermen or hunter, hunters out there? Okay, this could go in the fishing world or in the gamesman world, being a hunter. It says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So imagine the fish, whenever you're fishing for a certain type or species of fish, you've got to know what you're fishing for. You've got to know what bait they're going to be attracted to. You've got to know what time of the day, what weather, all these factors if you want to be an excellent fisherman. So using this analogy, did you know that the enemy knows your weakness? He knows what you're allured by. Oh, bright light. I mean, he knows what's going to get your attention. But you know what? That, that seems frightening and scary. But having God with you and in you, that's going to help you overcome this. So it brings up the question, what's the source of your temptation? Okay, if God's not the source, well... Who or what is? Throughout the Bible, we find three main sources. The first one is this, the world around us. That's the corruption around us. I'm not talking about the world system in general. I'm talking about that which is against God. I mean, you don't have to turn on the TV very long to see anti-God stuff, anti-Jesus stuff. Anybody use the Internet in here? Okay, you just look at the sidebars on when you search something, and all the advertisements tell you, I mean, temptations, all the world is trying to bring us astray. The second one is the flesh. And, you know, that's kind of the sinful nature within us. That's the fallen humanity, the flesh. Now, when you become a believer, do you get a new nature? Absolutely. But you still have a battle between the flesh and the spirit, as we find in Galatians. And this is really the one James is talking about, the desire inside of us. And then you have the devil. And might I add, it's probably not the devil himself, it's one of his fallen angels, because he's got bigger fish to fry. Something to remind us of the devil, he can only be in one place at one time. So he's probably dealing with the, the people that are in authority, he's dealing with the, the, the people that have millions of followers, he's probably not dealing with you or I. So usually it's not Satan tempting you, it's somebody else. You know, Satan tempted Jesus, but we're not really in the same category. He's going to tempt people that have that influence. So Satan has the same old strategies. If you're, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down Genesis 3, 6, Luke 4, 1 through 13, and 1 John 2, 16. That's Genesis 2, 3, 6, Luke 4, 1 through 13, and 1 John 2, 16. And without going into great depth, this is something I've got to give the Lord complete credit. But when I was a teenager, some of you around 15 early, the Lord revealed this to me in high school. I was reading about the temptations of Jesus, and then my mind took me to Genesis 3, 6. And it says, whenever Eve saw the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise, she took the fruit, gave it to Adam, he ate. Now look at those three things, good for food. What was Jesus' first temptation? 
to change the stone into bread. Okay, good for food, pleasing to the eyes. What was Jesus' second temptation? The cities of the world, weren't they very pleasing to the eyes? And then the pride of life, what was Jesus' third temptation? Cash yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. In other words, I'm going to make you wise in the eyes of all these bystanders, and they're going to think you're the Messiah. And you may say, well, that's just coincidental, Timothy. Well, 1 John 2, 16, exact same order. It says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, good for food, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not the Father, but is of the world. Same three categories of temptations. So what does that tell us? Satan really has the same old tricks, same old bag of tricks. He finds new ways of doing it, but it's the same old sins. So don't ever feel like I'm the only one going through this temptation because he's been tempted people throughout the past 6,000 years or whatever, however the world's been here, 6,000 years or so, with the same temptations. And he's going to tempt you or I with the same. So the third point is, the third strategy to look at is, it's very simple, but it's also hard. Kill sin before sin kills you. Kill sin before sin kills you. So for the guys that really engage on the fishing, hunting analogy, James is very smart. He now appeals to the women. He gives an example from childbirth. I know Aaron and Michelle are getting ready any day now. So pray for them by Saturday. I think that's inducement day, right? Saturday, Friday. So any day now. So let's, let's, let's make a, let's talk about the birds and bees. You want to talk about the birds and bees? Are any kids in the room? Just kidding. We're going to do the G rated version. Okay. Where do babies come from? Storks, right? The stork comes and brings it. Uh, Lori and I were talking about how are we going to talk to air kids about this because their five-year-olds are already starting to ask. And I was like, well, consider it like this. We're planting a garden. For a plant to grow, you have to have a seed that's put in the dirt, water, and out comes a plant. That's kind of the way babies are formed, right? A seed is, comes in and the baby comes out. That's very simplistic, but it, this is the G-rated church version, right? <laughs> so, to unpack what James is trying to say here, I want you guys to think about it. Um, what happens during temptation? If you look at your outline, it's inner desire meets outward allurement, brings enticement, and whenever you yield to enticement, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's full growth, brings forth what? Death. So let me put this in simplistic terms. Something from the outside is attracted to something on the inside. These two things come together and a baby is formed. Metaphorically speaking, the baby is then born and grows up to a full-size human being. Isn't that the way sin works? You have something inside of you that wants it. An allurement from the outside. Those two come together. And James gives an analogy. If, if you give in to temptation, it forms this sin. And it's like you've given birth to sin. But if you don't kill sin while sin is little, it will grow up to a real grown killer. Because the wages of sin is death. So here's the, th- here's the strategy. First of all, resist temptation. But if, you, if you're in sin, what do you do? You've got to kill sin before it kills you. And you're like, well, wait a second, Timothy, I thought Jesus died for all the sins. He did. But he doesn't want you to live in sin any longer if you're a Christian. Amen. So John Piper, I love his quote. We talked about this a few weeks ago. If you look at your outline, he says, sin, for example, lust, gets its power 
by persuading me to believe that I will be more happier if I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. Did you realize that? If sin wasn't enjoyable, no one would do it. But one, one thing I want you to think about, have you ever met anybody that was dying far from God that was happy about it? Have you ever met anyone on their deathbed that just said, I'm so glad I've lived a life of sin? I don't, to this day, I don't think I've met anyone. Because Satan's strategy is this, he gives you the best he's got, and then it just gets worse. Have you ever noticed that? But Jesus gives you what is good, and he saves the best for last. So I don't know about you, but I want the good and the best for last versus something that's temporary good and just gets worse. So sin really, really is short-lived. It's fun just for a moment, but that's it. Strategy number four, sin messes with your mind so don't let it deceive you. I love verse 16. It says, don't be deceived, my beloved brother. And you see how people can be deceived. Well, God made me do it. Uh, I made all these decisions and it's God's fault. It's others' faults. And James says, listen, don't blame a good God for your bad choices. Listen, whenever you're in temptation, you don't have to give in to it. And by the way, if you're in sin, you can overcome it. Because Jesus Christ died for your sin. He gives you victory and he gives you grace. And I want you to know at Arden first, we are a truth church, but we're also a grace church. And there's second and third and 54th chances for people who mess up. Amen. So if you're sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm the one who messed up. God gives grace. He's a loving father. You just have to call out to him. So it says, do not be deceived. I love Charles Spurgeon's quote. This is and this will be worth the sermon if you just remember this. He says, what settings are you when you fall? Talking about falling to sin. He said, avoid them. So if I'm an alcoholic, I probably need to stay away from the bars, right? What props do you have that support your sin? Eliminate them. What people are you usually with? Avoid them. You ever notice that sometimes when you are in a lifestyle of sin, you're around the same people? Charles Spurgeon is like, you may need to get a new group of friends if they're causing you to drag you down. There are two equally lies that Satan wants us to believe. The first one is this, just once won't hurt. I've been told that lie, haven't you? And the second one is now that you've ruined your life, you're beyond God's use. And you might as well go on enjoying sinning. And I want to say you're never beyond God's reach. No matter what you've done, no matter where you're from, no matter how bad you've been, a good God can erase it all in just a moment. Amen. This is the church of second chances. So on your outline, I thought of this thought, and I want you guys to go along the road with me. Have you ever thought that sin actually makes you stupid? Has that ever occurred to you that it says do not be deceived? In other words, you can be deceived by sin. Sin can actually make you not intelligent. And I'm speaking to a room of intelligent people. And you're like, what? What are you talking? I'm going to give you seven ways sin can make you stupid. The first one is this. Sin promises to make you full but leaves you empty. You ever notice that? If you do this, you'll have all this and you end up worse off than before. Sin promises to make you happy but never really leaves you satisfied. You ever notice that you're happy, but then the happiness is gone? Sin promises to give you the power of knowledge, but leaves you feeling insecure and vulnerable. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They had the knowledge of good, but not the knowledge of evil. He promised them knowledge, and the knowledge messed them up. They felt insecure, vulnerable. Sin promises you the world, but doesn't give you the ability to truly enjoy the world once you have it. It's kind of like Ecclesiastes, they talk about having great wealth and riches, but if you don't have the life to enjoy it, it's just in vain. It's chasing the wind. 
Sin promises you life, but doesn't tell you that death is waiting for you on the other side of your pleasure. Now, that'll make you think twice about doing that, right? If something bad is waiting on the other side of this good feeling. Sin promises you pleasure, but doesn't tell you about the pain. And number seven, sin messes with your theology. Sin leads you to believe that God's goodness and his good intentions, he leads you to doubt that. But I want you to know, no matter what you or I have done, no matter what type of sin we have done, God is still good. And he's, he's still the God who forgives. So if anything, I don't want anyone to hear defeat from James's words. I want you to hear victory, that you can overcome sin. If you're in sin, God can get you out of it. There is victory through the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? So for those of you who thought the sermon has been kind of downhill so far, like sin and, man, because we all fall into the same sinking boat. All of sin includes the one setting up here. James gives us some encouragement. You're like, thank God, I thought this was just going to be, yep, sin, temptation. The, the strategy number five is beautiful. I love what James gives us. God is still really good even when your circumstances around you are really bad. God is still really good. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So he says good gift and perfect gift. In, in the original Greek, Good gift, that's talking about the act of giving. Perfect gift, that's talking about the quality of the gift. So let's use an analogy here. Have you ever been given a Christmas gift where you appreciated the thought, but you really didn't like the gift and you didn't want to tell them? Everybody in here, right? So this is saying when God gives a gift, it's not only good to get a gift, but the quality is perfect. So here's going back to the sin analogy. Satan promises you a gift. But it's really not that good in the end. You're like, I signed up for this and I got ripped. But over here, God says, listen, I'm I'm a good father. And you can listen to the lies of the devil, but it's going to leave you empty and broken. But you know what? When I give you something, it's good not just for a moment, but it's good for a lifetime. When I give you something, my gifts last. Isn't that beautiful? And then he says it comes down from the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Uh, what's going on with the solar eclipse? Is that, is that what's coming up? Okay, anybody going to go see that? Where the glasses? You ever notice how the moon and the sun cast shadows? This verse is really cool. It's saying, okay, the world around you is constantly changing. Even looking at a solar eclipse, looking at the moon, the stars, the shadows. Sun comes up, the moon comes out, shadows, light, it all changes. But the same God who created the luminaries... Unlike them, he changes not. So even if your situation's not good, God is still good. Even though life has been bad, that doesn't mean that God's changed. It just means your circumstances have changed. You may have changed. The people around you have changed. But God is the one who says, I change not. So you're like, what does stars have to do with temptation, Timothy? James seems like he's chasing a rabbit. He's out on the left field. Well, let's put it this way. Whenever you're going through trials and temptations, it feels like you're walking through a dark valley. The same God that created the stars in the sky, the same God that created the galaxies, whenever you're at your darkest moment, he has the ability to throw you a shooting star. And all of a sudden you're walking in darkness and a shooting star comes bright in your path. And God says, listen, I haven't changed. You're walking in darkness, but I'm still light. You're going through hard times, but I'm still good. The father of lights has the ability to shine the light your way like a shooting star, brighten up your dark path. And I got a story about that this week. 
Some of you know some of my humorous stuff I mentioned last week about trials, about my car broken down. By the way, last Sunday I was stranded at church, which is, I guess is a good place to be stranded. My car wouldn't start, broken down. And the same week of my car broken down, my computer broke down. And obviously I have sermons due, I've got Bible studies due, and also had a 39-page paper for school due. So I'm like, okay, what, what's going on? So long story short, I was teaching over at Fruitland Bible College, and one of my friends was filling in at the men's Bible study I teach at in Waynesville. And while I was there, uh, the next week I come back to teach, and uh, the, the guy that was leading it said, let's get a group picture. And I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. I'm, you know, photobomb, let's, let's take this picture. So we take this picture, and then the guy, you'll see him in the bottom corner. He's wearing a white T-shirt on his knees. His name's Jason I didn't know this, but that week he told the guys, hey, Timothy's had a really rough week and all this is happening and uh, we should do something nice for him. And, um, you know, I was having a really bad week. I'm just like watching my bank account go down to nothing and repair, repair. And so all of a sudden these guys uh, surprised me and got me a brand new computer. They um, gave me a gift card and said, go, go buy whatever you want. And I'm just like, are you kidding? Like, you know. And it was just one of those ways of God shooting star. I haven't forgotten about you. I know life can get tough. And that's my prayer for you. Some of you may be going through a rough season. And I know many of you have gotten the doctor's report. You've been in and out of the hospital, different stuff. And my prayer is that you wouldn't doubt God's goodness even when the world around you is tough. He has the ability to throw you a shooting star. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the final strategy that James gives us, number six, God's solution to the maze of temptation, a new birth, a new start, and a new identity. Don't you guys love new stuff? You know, you walk, for those of you ladies and some of you men that walk down the grocery store aisles, you ever notice how it says new and improved? I almost think whenever we get baptized, we should have this new, improved, and improving certificate. You know, I'm a new creation. I'm definitely improving. I'm improving. It's new, improved, and improving until we get the certificate that says perfect when we get before God in heaven. So he says in verse 18, of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So you have a new birth by the word of truth. This is what the Bible talks about being born again. And scholars have rightly made this statement. He who is born once dies twice, but he who is born twice dies only once. And you're like, what is that talking about? Well, we're all born once into this world. Whenever the doctor says, congratulations, it's a boy, it's a girl. But the second birth is whenever you give your life to Christ. And if you've never had that second birth, then there's another death awaiting you. So whenever you're born twice, you only have a physical death. But whenever you're born once, you die twice, physically and spiritually. And that death is eternal. And the Bible says it's a real place called hell. And the thing about it is hell's not even made for us. It's for the devil and his angels. So if we go there, it's because we refuse God's gift of salvation. He gives us life in Jesus Christ. So the good news, the gospel we're trying to proclaim is you don't have to die twice. You know, God has a better plan for you. And then the new start, with the new birth comes a second chance at life. Aren't you glad that when you give your life to Christ, he erases not just your past, but also your present and your future. Because how many times did Jesus die? One time. And if you accept that sacrifice, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Now, that does not give you a license to sin. In fact, I feel like for those who feel like it does, I would question if you really gave your life to Christ. Because if, 
You're saved from sin, not so that you can sin. That's the wrong motive for turning. You're like, I'm going to get saved so I can do what I want. No, that's not really salvation. It has to be turning from your sin. But also there's a new identity. Notice it says that we're the first fruits. We're part of God's very own family. So in life, sometimes I can think of it like your, your, your life is like in this boat. And sometimes the waters of the sea get really dark. So what we need in this boat are some anchors of hope. So I want to give you five quick anchors of hope. And these are things that you're thinking, okay, temptation, great, and strategy is great, but I want something practical. How many of you are practical? You just want to know, okay, for those of you who are very practical, I'm going to give you five simple anchors. These have helped people throughout time, and they'll, they'll help you. The first one is this, daily time in God's Word. Like, that's so insightful, Pastor. Read the Bible. I mean, come on. But seriously, it seems very elementary, but it's true. If you're not into God's book, it's going to be so much more easy to fall into temptation. I've heard that the Bible will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from the Bible. You ever heard that statement? I think it's, it's true. The second one is this, fellowship with God's people. How many of you know that life is too hard to live alone? You are made for community. In fact, the Trinity, isn't that a community? The Father, Son, the Spirit, they've been in community with each other throughout eternity. So God made you in his image, and he wants you to connect with other people. If you're not connected with other people, you're missing out on what God has for you, a lot of what he has for you. And number, number three, keep yourself healthy. This is something new. Um, I thought of this thing about being a six-speed saint. You're like, what in the world is that? Aaron and I have been in, coming up with the new sayings lately. Six-speed saint. How many of you love six-speed cars? Really fast. Anybody drive a six-speed? Okay, I've got a few. So here's the six speeds. You want to be firing on all speeds. The first one is spiritual. That's gear one. Give your life to Christ. Develop a relationship with him. Gear two is mentally. If your mind is all messed up, it's really hard to have a balanced life. Get, get your mind where it should be. Socially. You guys are social people. Get connected. Emotionally. We don't have to look around at anyone, but you ever have an emotional week where you're all over the map? How are you doing spiritually during that week? How are you doing with your relationships? Physically, your body is the temple of God. It's hard to do ministry without a body, right? You ever thought about that? And also financially, you know, we're, we're stewards of all that God's given us. So I call this being a six-speed saint. Spiritual is the most important, but out of that flows the other gears. And I want us to be healthy in all cylinders, to be all that God's created us to be. So if you look at your outline, there's... This discipleship path, and I don't have time to go into great detail about it, but um, I, I've developed a road map. And this is kind of like you go hiking, say, on a trail. And you know you have, how you have trailheads that tell where you're at? So at the beginning of the map, this is you and I, we're at the beginning. The first trailhead is active. It's being active in worship, attending worship faithfully. You're like, well, what does it mean to be faithful? Well, if you miss more than you're come, you're still working on step one. Step two is connected. Connected to what? Community. Join a life group. We have such good Sunday school classes, life groups, because you are meant to be in community with others. Step three is embrace. Embrace your place, serving and giving. A Christian that is firing on all cylinders, they've found where God has created them to be, what spiritual gifts they have. They're serving, they're giving of themselves, of their resources. And what usually happens as a Christian keeps going down the path is step four it's multiply 
It's whenever you lead someone to Christ. Because think about it. If you're sharing your faith with others, step three, and you're, you're serving and you're showing the love of Christ, eventually, most likely, you're going to have the opportunity to experience leading someone else to Christ. And for those of you who have done that, it's just such joy. And guess what? When you're on step four and you lead someone to Christ, you walk through the other steps with them. Pretty simple process. So I wanted to lay out a pathway to say, how do we grow in our faith? Where are you at? So if some of you are on step one, nothing wrong with that. Just realize God wants you to go to step two and keep growing. He wants you to keep growing. One more story and we're finished. Howard Cattle was a successful Christian businessman. And he helped underwrite many Christian ministries in his day. But his life didn't start off that way. He had a godly mother, but his father was an alcoholic. By the age of 12, he was going down the pathway of his father instead of his mother. As he was leaving home, his mother always told him, at 8 o'clock every night, I will be kneeling by my bed praying for you to come to the Lord. He shrugged it off, went about his way. And he lived a hard life, drinking, being immoral, even get involved in organized crime. Didn't sound like what his mother was praying for, or does it? His wake-up call one night came after he had spent a day of binge drinking. And he was just completely out of it. So out of it, he pulled a gun on one of his friends and pulled the trigger. Thankfully, it did not go off. By God's divine intervention, he didn't shoot his friend. And as he came to and started sobering up, he looked at the clock. And guess what time it was? Eight o'clock. So he came running home to his mother. And by now he's convinced that he'd gone too far. God could not love him. He had gone too far. And as he came home and his mother opened up the Bible to Isaiah 118. And she read to him, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. That morning he received Christ. And his life was forever changed. Instead of using his organizational abilities for crime, he used them to help out other ministries. So I conclude with that story. And the follow-up question is, how are you doing? How are you and Jesus doing? Are you in a temptation that you're trying to pray your way out of? Or are you have yielded to it and you're in a lifestyle of sin? And today you've been given hope that there's a way out. It's through the cross. If you'll just look to Jesus, he will get you out. It's not a matter of people say, well, I'll come to church once I clean up. No, you come to church just as you are, and Jesus cleans you up. So don't let Satan throw another lie that uh, you can't come to church until you're perfect. No, all of us are imperfect people. We're just forgiven, and you too can be forgiven today. So if you will, let's pray together. Father, your word is so powerful, and as I read from James, I, I was convicted. Like, so many times we blame our own mistakes on a good God, like you know, I made a mistake and it must be God's fault. But God, help us realize a good God doesn't lead us into bad things. That's the world around us. That's the flesh within us. And that's the devil and other, other influences trying to get us to do wrong. So, Father, I pray for our brothers and sisters. Right now, with no one looking around, everyone just in a spirit of prayer, let your seat be your sanctuary. Would there be one here that would say, Timothy, pray for me to overcome temptation? Raise your hand. I'm going to raise my hand with you because we, we go through temptation every day. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Would there be anyone that would say, Timothy, you know, I've been living in a lifestyle of sin and I realize I need to surrender my sin and accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to experience a new birth. 
a new start. I, I want to erase the past. And the good thing about it is if you ask Jesus, he will forgive all of your sin. You'll have a brand new start so that it will not be held against you by God anymore. If that's you today, just slip up your hand. I want to pray for you. Timothy, I need a new start. Thank you, I see that hand. Anyone else? I need a new start. Right where you're sitting, just say a simple prayer of faith. In your own heart, in your own words, say, Jesus, I need a new start. I ask and pray that you would make me new inside. Lord, I've, I've messed up along the way, as you're aware of, and I'm sorry for that. But Jesus, I was given hope today that Jesus Christ came to die for me, for my sin, so that I could be white as snow. So Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I make you my Lord and Savior. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, we want to welcome you to the kingdom of God. And Father, for the rest of us, help us, Lord. Keep us away from the candy aisle. We don't want to even go near it, God. Um, Keep us from being tempted. And for those who are struggling with that, give them victory through the power of the Holy Spirit. As we stay in your word, as we stay in prayer, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. This time, stand in victory. And if you have any prayer requests, whether someone's going through something hard in your life, you're facing a temptation or trial, or if you pray to receive Christ, I'll be at the front, Adam and Diana, and we'll be glad to pray for you. So come as the Spirit leads.